Welcome to Leadership Matters, a podcast hosted by the University of Georgia's J.W. Fanning Institute for Leadership Development and the Small Business Development Center, Units of Public Service and Outreach. I'm your host, Matt Bishop, Director of the Fanning Institute. No matter where you are in Georgia, we've all experienced the trials and tribulations of the global pandemic, as well as a reckoning on racial and social relations. And as a result, we've seen community and civic groups, businesses and government, all grapple with how to move our communities forward. And the nonprofit sector has not been immune. In fact, local nonprofits have been called upon to address the pandemic's problems and racial and social unrest now more than ever. So in this special episode of our Leadership Matters podcast, we're going to focus on changing trends for Georgia nonprofits, particularly on those on the front lines of philanthropy. Earlier this year, the Fanning Institute hosted a virtual nonprofit funders panel where we held a roundtable discussion with five well-respected leaders in Georgia's philanthropic community. I invite you to join me as we return to this conversation centered on shifts in philanthropic funding and also the inflection point we find ourselves in in the call for courageous and inclusive leadership. Let's take a listen. Our mission at Fanning is to strengthen communities, organizations, and individuals through leadership development. And one particular way that we fulfill our leadership mission is through our work with nonprofit organizations. Fanning's work with nonprofits recognizes the important role nonprofit organizations play in community economic vitality. And as such, our programs and services for nonprofits range from strategic planning and organizational development to board governance and executive leadership. During this podcast, we're going to explore changing trends in the sector, particularly those shifts to philanthropy that have resulted from the global pandemic and the racial and social unrest that our communities are facing. Our moderator for this podcast is a great friend of the Fanning Institute, Mr. Milton Little. Milton serves as president and CEO of the United Way of Greater Atlanta. Throughout Milton's time leading the organization, United Way has experienced unprecedented success, and he's someone for whom others turn to for advice and counsel, just as we have at Fanning, as it happens that Milton serves on the Institute's advisory board. I'm very grateful for Milton's service on our board, and even more grateful for his willingness to serve as our moderator today. Milton, my friend, take it away. Thank you, Matt. It is a pleasure for me to be here. Uh, And to your audience, I am a proud uh, member of the advisory uh, board for the Fanning Institute. Uh, It's my pleasure to serve as a moderator today. I have the the, uh, opportunity to be with four friends who I know you will learn a lot from uh, today as we uh, dialogue with one another uh, on the issues that are most important uh, to many in the community. Philanthropy is changing because of COVID. Nonprofit organizations are having to change. And what's all that mean? If you simply Google uh, COVID and philanthropy or COVID and nonprofits, you'll get story after story after story uh, from a national perspective of what's going on. 
But today you get an opportunity to have a Georgia and a Southeast perspective from four experts who can tell you what you need to know. Uh, and Matt will be able to provide opportunities to share with you how you can learn more if today just wasn't enough uh, for you. So let me introduce my, uh, my four friends, your panelists, and I'm gonna do it by alphabetical order. We'll start with Rodney Bullard, who's the Vice President of Corporate Social Responsibility at Chick-fil-A. Catherine Dennis, who's the President of the Community Foundation of Central Georgia. Janine Lee, President and CEO, Southeastern Council of Foundations. And Betsy Verner, Associate Director at the J. Bulow Campbell Foundation. So let's begin with the question uh, from their experience. Each one of you knows a little bit about philanthropy, and you can also share a perspective on what philanthropy has looked like over the last nine to 10 months, uh, given the impact of COVID uh, and how philanthropy is changing in order to meet uh, the new demands and needs of communities. So let me ask uh, for your perspective on this topic. Let's begin with Janine Lee. Well, thank you, Milton, so much, and Matt, for the invitation and greetings to uh, the audience for this session. Um, first of all, I just want to say, um, after 30 years of working inside of philanthropy, that I come into this work with the understanding that there's an inextricable link between philanthropy and public charities. Um, one can't do the great work without the other. Um, I think we all know that at this moment in our history and in our democracy, we've reached an inflection point and there's a call for courageous leadership. Um, I wanna start out by saying that over the last nine to 10 months, what I've observed um, leading one of the largest regional associations of grant makers in the country is that philanthropy and its leaders um, have spent a lot of time in self-reflection. Um, and the foundations themselves have done a lot of deep and um, important self-examination um, and looking deeply at its relationships with nonprofits and the communities that it serves. Um, I know for the Southeastern region that over 3,700 grants were given and people came together quickly to amass over $774 million in response to COVID. It's not just the amount of money that was given, it's how it was given. And so I wanna share a few thoughts with you about what changed and what was different over the last uh, nine to 10 months. So first, you know, we've heard a lot and seen a lot of members that have eliminated restrictions on grants and loosened their eligibility requirements. They've simplified applications and they've reduced the numbers of questions. Um, they've provided more unrestricted funding over these past several months. They've awarded more multi-year grants and um, extended current grants over the last nine to 10 months, and certainly communicated proactively with grantees about their needs and their capacity. You know, just to give a couple of examples, the Sapelo Foundation, which is based in South Georgia, increased their payout to 8% over the next three years. 
Um, they've increased their priority around general operating support, multi-year grants, and they've streamlined their application process. Another example out of North Carolina, the Mary Reynolds Babcock Foundation not only increased their grant payout, they transitioned their CDFI grants uh, to uh, the support for CDFIs to grants. Um, they also extended the maturity of most PRIs or program-related investments by one year, and they effectively doubled uh, the foundation's payout for 2020. Now, the reality is that not all foundations can increase their payout to 8%, and certainly not all foundations are in a position to double their payout, but these are a few of the examples that we've seen across the South. In addition, we've seen a lot more partnership with government, and we've seen contributions to statewide sponsored relief funds, um, as an example, or some foundations that are actually providing a lot of relief uh, in partnership with small businesses in their communities. Um, we've seen groups that are really assessing how their current grant making might reinforce inequities. And they've taken a lot of time and self-reflection to try to reverse that um, practice if they have found it in their work. Um, you know, it kind of builds on this notion that hate is not charitable. And so for many community foundations across our region and across the country, they're really taking a strong look at their donor advised funds to ensure that whether it's direct or indirect, that they're not supporting in any way any hate groups. Um, and then finally, we've seen this pooling of resources um, that's been a really beautiful thing to see across the South and the country. Um, so one foundation may not have a lot of resource, another may be very well resourced, but by pooling those resources, they can support a number of efforts across the region. So those are a few examples um, that I've seen over the last ten, uh, eight, nine to 10 months. Thank you. Janine, those are, those are great examples and there's a good lead in to, uh, to Catherine because Janine did mention community foundations in her, uh, in her remarks. Catherine, what's the experience been there in uh, central Georgia? Thank you, Milton. Um, like most of my colleagues around the state at community foundations, we immediately stood up a um, response and recovery fund for COVID and we partnered with our United Way. And I'll say that that's what I've seen that is so different the last nine to 10 months that I think will stay is that we have a really, really strong relationship with our United Way now, but also we've built collaborations with the nonprofits who are, you know, feet, boots on the ground, doing the heavy lifting all day with during this pandemic. and the very first thing we did was create the fund, but then um, invite the nonprofits in our 24 county region, we overlapped in some, and to, to join us every other week on phone calls to tell us what was going on so that we had real time data and, and not trying to ask them to fill out a lot of forms. They could just verbally tell us what was going on and we were able to um, deploy resources very quickly. And, um, 
and I think that's been the greatest thing. And, and we had individual donors and fund holders for the community foundation and private foundations. Everybody came in together. Um, another thing that we had already been had some experience with in our community foundation was making grants to individuals. But we realized that I mean, how could we take philanthropic dollars and um, and support the businesses that were out there, for-profit businesses. And we, um, within the first three weeks, we partnered with Newtown Macon and asked them if they would be willing to stand up a, um, a, I guess a consulting firm basically for businesses in our region. And that they really understood all of the government relief programs and they um, they had group training sessions and then you could sign up and do individual training with them and, and consulting really not training but consulting with them. So that our small businesses, we could keep them going and keep them, keep them, keep them up and running. And um, we partnered with Make an Arts Alliance to do an artist relief fund for our region. And so that individual artists that whether they were um, visual or performing had access to a little bit of capital to keep them going because all of their shows, nobody, nobody really had disposable money to buy art when there were certainly couldn't take classes. And, um, and then we um, were a major funder for um, the Black Business Support Fund for the region. So I think when you look at, at, at community foundations that we were already well positioned to um, to, 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 to work with United Way and both of us together could, um, could really reach these nonprofits quickly. Um, but I don't think we'll ever go back. I think what we've seen a lot of interest from the nonprofits of, of, of continuing this collaboration and sharing resources. I mean, while we were giving monetary resources from the funds, they were sharing with each other just really great ideas on how to survive that. And that I think was the, I get goosebumps when I talk about it because it was just so invigorating to watch these leaders just, just support each other. And then our mental health groups were, they were offering free counseling sessions for the nonprofits because it was wearing them. I mean, just the, the, the volume of work and the overwhelming need was wearing on these, on these, on these, these, these hard workers. So um, that's a, a long answer to your question, but. <laughs> no, no, but that's a great answer. Uh, and, and I don't know that the audience has a full appreciation, Catherine, of, uh, of this partnership that United Ways and community foundations uh, have been able to strike because the tradition is that we are competitors uh, in this philanthropy space, that there, we share and compete for many of the same donors, particularly at the high end of that donor spectrum. And so it is not a foregone conclusion uh, that United Ways and Community Foundations would automatically come together. But there in, in, uh, in Macon with my counterpart, uh, George McCandless, what we were able to do uh, in Atlanta with the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta, what they've done in Dallas and a host of other communities all across the country. That, that, that competition was put aside uh, as we realized there was more we could do together uh, than we could do if each one of us tried to find our own donors in our own and old traditional ways. Oh, we said we always expect that of, of our grantees. And so for us, it was a, a wonderful opportunity to, to lead by example. And as I said, I, we're never going back. George, George and I say we, we're the brother and sister we, 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 we never knew we had. And, and it just, I think that from now on, we can we pull resources and ideas and that that competition is gone. And I've really seen that in the nonprofit sector in our region as well. And I imagine you have in Atlanta, Atlanta too. 
Well, well thank you, Catherine. And I know, uh, Betsy, you've seen that collaboration in Atlanta. Um, but I offer you the, uh, the floor to just uh, uh, share your perspective and experience. Well, certainly, thank you, Milton. And I can vouch for the impact that the Community Foundation and the United Way Partnership has had in Atlanta under Milton's leadership, as well as that of Frank Fernandez. Uh, and I think my, my sense, Milton, is that probably will continue here as well, right? Um, it's been wonderful to see um, how much the community, especially organized philanthropy, has trusted and relied on those two institutions to uh, ferret out the the need um, and sort of get get capital into the community quickly and they did a wonderful job of that I think uh, for those on the call who have some familiarity with the Campbell Foundation while we do work kind of quietly um, due to Mr. Campbell's tradition of modesty uh, it some people know that we do favor capital work for the most part which is you know translates as key institutional moments or comprehensive campaigns or whatever you might want to call it. Um, but with COVID, uh, I'm really proud to say that our trustees really put that playbook aside um, and got into some territory that was was unfamiliar to them and, and took some real wonderful chances. Um, two big things happened. One is that um, with the onset of, of COVID and, and the obvious impact it was having um, economically across the country, as well as in our region, we noticed that a lot of organizations sort of eased up on capital requests anyway. Um, but our trustees had sort of already made up their mind that they were gonna slow down on some of the capital grant making that they traditionally do and focus on some of the frontline human services, they were sort of defining that as food, shelter, education, childcare, health, those kind of things. And they did that. Um, we, we are a small foundation staff, um, many, many of even in organized philanthropy with staff foundations, many of the foundations are small of staff. So we sort of have to rely on a little bit of shoe leather, leather and some research in our own um, database to find those organizations. Um, but then we were able to rely also on community leaders like Milton and others to help us identify organizations that we might be in danger of overlooking. Um, and we, we did some of that. And then some of that conversation coincided with the racial unrest of the summer. And we were able to really rely on some of our colleagues uh, in the black community to help us find organizations that we weren't particularly familiar with or who might not be familiar with us just because of size and scale and not having ever had a capital need before. And that yielded some, some nice grants. In fact, just as a recap, um, I did a little research. So far, Campbell's awarded 79 grants. Um, that compares to a normal 30 or 40 grants a year. So you can see we've been busy. Um, 79 grants just for COVID. So that doesn't even take into account the capital grants we've continued to make. And those total nearly 6.5 million. Just to put that in perspective, the Campbell Foundation usually gives about 25 million. So roughly 25% of our grants last year went for the purpose of COVID emergency relief. And our trustees are, are still at it. They're looking ahead at, at a sixth round, which will happen in April. Um, some of the grants were awarded around the state of Georgia, um, and uh, many were in Atlanta, but usually they had sort of some, some basic um, 
connection to some of those frontline human issues that I mentioned earlier. That's great, Bessie. Thanks you so much. Um, Rodney, let me ask you to, to slip in here because much of the conversation so far has been about private philanthropy and community foundations. Yes. Um, I can speak from the United Way perspective, our COVID uh, effort would be uh, uh, far smaller were it not for the companies that were so generous uh, in their gifts to us. Um, but what's it looked like um, you know, as a corporate philanthropist, Rodney, how, how have you seen this perspective? No, Milton, I, I appreciate the question and I appreciate the opportunity to be on the panel with you all. Uh, Milton, you know, I appreciate your leadership and particularly the leadership you showed here during COVID. And, and I highlight this word leadership because we talk about philanthropy and sometimes particularly in the corporate halls, philanthropy can feel soft or it can feel less than, but really I equate philanthropy to leadership that our goal is not just to raise money or to grant money, but our goal is to solve hard problems. And obviously the hard problem uh, of the day, the many hard problems that we saw in 2020 continue to persist in 2021. And so the opportunity to partner with community foundations and partner with United Way to solve those problems uh, from a corporate perspective is to me, a leg of the stool that is critical. Uh, and so, we were happy to do that from a Chick-fil-A perspective, the Chick-fil-A Foundation and Chick-fil-A Corporate really focuses on how can we solve the problem of economic mobility? And we think that that can be solved or at least addressed through key points of education, key points of housing, key points of food insecurity and solving that issue. And so this year uh, in particular, when it was obvious and apparent that um, racial inequity continues to persist in this country. We were able to change our traditional True Inspiration Awards, which is a program that we've had for the past seven years, which grants money to organizations across the country. And we involve our operators, our franchisees. We also involve our customers. Uh, they can vote on the app. And this year we focused uh, our awards on those organizations that were helping communities of color. And we also were sure to look at, and we had a bias, although it was not an exclusion, but we did have a bias to look at were those organizations also led by people of color? Uh, because we think that leadership and the opportunity of leadership is important. And so we were very pleased to be able to do that. And I'm also pleased to report that one, we had the highest response in all of the seven years to the grant applications and we had the highest response from our customers. In fact, our app, our Chick-fil-A app has all sorts of things on it that draw customers in, but this drew customers in more than any other opportunity throughout the entire year. And so you see that leadership is important to everybody and the opportunity of leadership is important. Thank you, Rodney, uh, for that. And, and I'm gonna stick with you for, uh, for this next question. And, it's a, and, and some of it's been touched on in the previous re remarks, but I'll ask folks to go a little deeper if they are, are, uh, are able. And these circumstances that we've been referring to, the pandemic, the social unrest, uh, not only have changed to some degree sort of the kind of grants that you give, but they've obviously you know, required some changes in just how you the policies of the foundations. 
you know, and the practices of the foundations yes. and how to make decisions. I'll I'll speak from the the United Way perspective and our partnership with the Community Foundation. Those COVID relief grants were all general operating support uh, yes. grants. We felt it wasn't our place to dictate to a local community addressing emergency needs how they needed to do it, um, and they needed to be flexible. Uh, whether they needed additional technology, additional PPP, PPE, excuse me, or sanitary uh, uh, materials, or grant making. We felt it was the wisdom of that local board, of that local nonprofit, in looking at the community's needs to be able to make wise decisions. Um, we didn't sort of worry about um, anything that might go uh, haywire. Uh, are there policy changes, decision-making practices, other kinds of uh, things that you typically had done that you put aside? And if you put them aside, do you think they're put aside permanently or to, uh, to what Catherine said, you know, some of these things we're gonna do forever because we're locked at the hip. Rodney, what, what's the experience of uh, Chick-fil-A? Absolutely. So from a Chick-fil-A perspective, we always, uh, gave our dollars unencumbered. Uh, so we, we, we invest in leadership. And we, if we feel like you're a good leader, we feel like you can discern the best way to manage those dollars to get the objective done. So leadership and the mission. But I think what's changed for us is our intentionality uh, and in, ensuring that we are going about um, giving to organizations that really are impacting and moving the needle on solving a problem and not necessarily just giving to those who are popular or giving to the cheerleaders or those who, who resonate uh, the loudest from a political standpoint, but how can we find that organization, as Betsy said, that might not have been unknown to us and, and that we can do more due diligence and that we can be more proactive in going out and solving that problem and granting grants. Uh, and we can be more effusive in the manner in which we do it. Uh, because I think also talking about it and letting other people know about it is important, uh, not for our own sake, because it has nothing to do with us as a corporation or from a marketing standpoint, but to make sure that those organizations get the publicity and that those organizations also are, uh, are held up in their standards so others can come by and support them as well so that we can be a gold standard for them. Great. Janine, the your organization's got a, a vast portfolio of different sizes, different communities, different approaches, different priorities. You know, are, are there some general trends that you've seen uh, among those uh, members? And are there some particular examples that you'd like to hold out for others to learn from? Sure, thank you. Um, yes, um, our organization has around 350 foundations that are members from all across the 11 states and uh, southeastern states and the U.S. Virgin Islands. So we see a lot of difference um, within foundations, but collectively, one of the things that I pointed out earlier that we have seen is this sense of urgency and this sense of um, really wanting to get in there and make a difference um, given the environment we find. Our, um, we have members that uh, are uh, intending to last into perpetuity so they can be there always for generations to support um, communities and others that want to spin down 
as quickly as possible and get the resources out as quickly as they can um, so they will sunset um, within a certain period of time. But uh, a couple of things that I'll just add is that, that, that we're seeing is that we're, we're watching more communities and nonprofits hold foundations and philanthropy into account in ways that we've never seen before. But we're also seeing foundations and their leadership hold themselves into account in ways that we've possibly never seen before. This issue of equity is so important in a moment of social unrest and calls for racial justice and COVID with all the inequities that we've seen and the black and brown communities that are more deeply impacted um, by COVID. And so many foundations and their leaders are really taking a strong look at the demographic data around the organizations and communities that are being served and really taking a look at their grantees and the populations that they're serving. Um, they really want to ensure that resources are getting to those who are in most need and um, in communities of color in particular. And the community's calling for that as well. So, um, so those are some of the things that we're seeing. Thank you, thank you for that. We certainly uh, saw those calls. You know, people asked the question about uh, the work that we were doing, uh, whether we were applying an appropriate uh, equity lens to our COVID relief work um, and how we were responding to the to the social unrest that, that occurred. Um, Catherine, uh, excuse me, yeah, yeah, well, Catherine, I'll ask you uh, uh, again, besides uh, walking arm in arm in the future with my, uh, my colleague, George McCandless, uh, what else do you see the Community Foundation and other philanthropists uh, in your community um, doing from a policy and practice standpoint? And do you think it's permanent? Do you think it's temporary? Well, I think it's definitely permanent. I don't think I think there's no there's no there's no putting the genie back in the bottle on this. I mean that it's that it's it's part of the discussion. I will say that it's been part of the discussion at the Community Foundation and really with a lot of my colleagues um, for a while. And I'll credit Southeastern Council Foundation for a lot of, of the prodding here from training and from 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 annual meetings where we go and that that and that there were breakout sessions and things like that panel panels like this where you if you availed yourself you could you, your eyes could be be opened and and for me it I, I went to something and they were in to one of the sessions and they said well how if if you require people to have experience before you give them a grant how do they get experience i mean you know i mean you know what comes first the chicken or the egg so we'd already been working on trying to identify and make sure that if we met a smaller nonprofit or a, a, a up and coming leader that we could develop ways to get to know them and to let them, I guess, you know, see what they could do with with <laughs> with, with philanthropic dollars. And um, there are a couple of ways that we were able to do that. We um, partnered with the Knight Foundation several years ago and, um, and have been holding community conversations called On the Table. And we just had our third one virtually. And um, the first two years we had between five and 6,000 participating. That's one day of community conversations. This time we did over a week and we had about 1,000, 1,100 participants. But every year we, we had what called, were called conversation to action because I said talk is great and getting to know each other is great, but action is really important. So what are you gonna do with that? And so um, with these conversation to action grants, they were all small, $1,000 or less, we met some, 
fabulous leaders that have really bubbled up and um, and and where they they've got a thousand dollar grant. Well, then we had some other grant opportunities and then they got a $5,000 grant, and a $25,000 grant. So we already had a relationship with some of these grassroots leaders. Um, but I'll tell you, I met three more on this last round of On the Table that, that I hadn't hadn't run across before. And I just met a young man that um, that at a press conference that he was doing to stop the violence. And he'd been in prison for 12 years and he's got a really small group. So I'm digressing, but but my point is that, that you, you have to find ways to get to know people. I don't look like, I mean, I'm a 50, a white woman in my 50s. I, I, I might not be approachable to some people. So I try really hard to figure out ways that they do feel comfortable coming to the Community Foundation. And we have different ways of, 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 of getting to know people. But, but what happened before all of the unrest that happened with George Floyd, we were already making grants from our COVID Response and Recovery Fund. And I went back after all the conversations to see we were, and this was not intentional at all, but of the 121 grants that we made, 31 of them were to black let, not black benefiting even, just black let. I just, I, did, I mean, you could argue that more of them are black benefiting. So 25.6% were to black led organizations, but $432,000 of the $1.4 million went. So that's a 30% of the dollars went to black led groups. And that, that wasn't intentional. It was just because we had, we knew these leaders, they knew us and we, and they were coming into the calls. We'd invited them to participate in the calls. And so uh, that's that's down the line a little bit, and I think in our conversation, but 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 building relationships and friendships and trust is what's so important. Um, another thing that um, that we did, the community foundations around, around the state, we have a really strong network. And what I'm telling you, my, my colleagues have done all over the state. It's not just that central Georgia that's doing this. I mean, that you can say it's represented with 14 community foundations and everybody is, 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 is doing this work. But we realized our donors, we thought might be hungry for a conversation around what was going on in racial equity and how to look at your philanthropy. And so we, we hosted, a statewide call for our donors. And um, we did it all of us because we didn't want our donors to feel like that it was a really tiny group. And, and then we did um, Zoom breakout rooms with our donors and it was very powerful. And, um, and I think just having that conversation opened the eyes of a lot of our donors and they were, and they're more willing. And, and I should have said this in, when we talked earlier, but um, Janine's hit on it on, on payout percentages. Um, donor advised funds are, are are very different. They are some some like like all philanthropy. Um, we have 350 funds. We have 350 different reasons for giving, and um, and so our average payouts a little over eight percent. Last year, our year end is June 30th. Our payout was over 12 percent from our donor advised funds, and that's directly related to COVID. People wanted to get their money out there, but a lot of our donors are they're living. They're paying it out. There is part of their personal philanthropy. They're paying it out, but but then we have other donors who have who passed away and left their money as an endowment for for the foundation because it's important that there are resources in the future. I mean, you know, you don't want to burn all your money. I mean, you know, at least my mama told me that. You know, you need to keep some in savings, <laughs> and that you that that you can't you can spend it all today. 
And that sounds really great, but what happens tomorrow? You're counting on somebody else coming in and doing it. I mean, there are so many wonderful things that have happened because of endowed philanthropy and that continue to happen today. So our, we, at a community foundation, we have a mix of that. And, um, but regardless, I think coming back to looking at what's happening with, um, with, with all of the, the racial un, unrest and the injustice that is just really the light's been shown that you have to measure what you expect our board measures that we've always said we wanted to increase our donors of color at the community foundation and when we started our pie chart it would have been like one percent so like a little tiny sliver on a pie chart and we're we're, we're slowly being intentional and in growing that but again people have to know that that opportunity is there and so i think we've just got lots of work to do but i think it's around around Georgia and the Southeast, there's there's good work being done. Thank, thank you, thank you for that. Betsy, let me, let me ask you a question, not so much about the permanence of any of these changes, um, but in your introduction to uh, your foundation, you talked about its history and tradition in capital grants, um, but COVID got you moving in some different directions. What was that conversation like among the small staff that you have and with your trustees who, who, who had the opportunity, I guess, to, to reflect on some changes in policies and practices uh, that might be appropriate for the moment? Was it an easy conversation? Was it difficult? How, how did it work? Well, it came quite naturally, actually. I think they, uh, well, the first thing we did was we made a grant to the um, United Way Community Foundation Relief Fund, hoping that that would get the ball rolling because we knew they were poised to respond quickly and they had the due diligence on all the various organizations. We're not in the business of doing operating support. So it's kind of, it's not something that we're used to really, you know, tightening the screws on the way we can say a building plan or something. So we kind of had to learn a new set of vocabulary. And we, um, you know, one thing I think that that was really gratifying was how much faith our trustees put in us to bring them some ideas because that's a new dynamic for our particular foundation. We're very trustee centered. Um, we, we really never make recommendations to our board. We, we present, them, present them with lots and lots of information and hope that they have what they need to make well-informed decisions. Um, and they've made some great ones over the years, but they really relied heavily on the staff to, to bring some organizations to the forefront. That's kind of how it worked. Great, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, and I wanna, go to uh, the next question that sort of picks up on uh, a little of where Catherine uh, was. Uh, interestingly enough, she, she talked about being a 50-ish white woman. Um, you know, I don't, race may have, race and gender may have something to do with it, but these jobs intimidate people. Um, you know, when, when people think about coming to, uh, to foundations or to United Way for money, um, they're not, you know, they, they don't come necessarily uh, always with their heads high. They, sometimes that, that head is bowed and they, they're a lot more humble and they don't know how to ask and they don't know whether we'll listen or pay attention, whether we care about what they're trying to do. So, you know, this is a conversation about the advice that we could give grant seekers. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, the audience might be interested in, in, in hearing just 
you know, how open and interested are we in giving away money? Uh, let me start with Betsy. Let me give a shot to that. Um, I think what I might say in response to that is that both John Stevenson, our executive director, and I come to the Campbell Foundation having um, been in fundraising. He had a long career at Emory. I had a you know career for about a decade in, in fundraising. And I think both of us sort of come, where we look back on those years and we think, Holly Day, if only we had known now what we knew, or only if we'd known then what we know now, which is to say, if you, if you really think about it, foundations have just as big a stewardship responsibility as nonprofits. It is our job on the foundation side to find high quality, uh, worthwhile organizations doing good work in order for us to carry out our mission. Like, uh, I can't remember, I think Milton, maybe it was you or Janine that said it earlier. We, we rely on the good work of the nonprofit community. It is very symbiotic. And so if that's the case, come see us. <laughs> we, we try at the Camel Foundation, and I, I think most foundations generally try to be warm and accessible. Um, it doesn't always result in a grant, but whatever we can do to demystify the process, which is I'm sure the case for Catherine and in Rodney as well, and, and at the United Way too, and among many of the foundations that Janine knows, um, you know, we, we remember that sweaty palm when we were development officers and we know that the best thing for us to do at the Campbell Foundation is to try to warm it up and also not necessarily um, expect, or, or let me say it this way, um, one, one other myth that I think you can overcome when you come on this side is that nothing is perfect. So if, if a nonprofit is waiting for the perfect exact moment to come to a foundation, it may take forever. Whereas we've got some conversations, some of them have lasted five or six years and ultimately turned into a grant at the end. But in the process, we were coaching back and forth. We were getting more information and learning more. We're, we're generalists. We're not subject matter experts on any of these um, key community issues, but we learn more. We get better in, in our knowledge of something. At the same time, we're able to sort of help an organization shape its proposal to the foundation. Um, we, we really need those quality proposals and it is competitive, um, I admit that, but another myth that's out there is that you've got to know somebody. You need to know Betsy to get into the Camel Foundation, not true. Um, you need to know one of our trustees. The truth is our trustees actually leave the room if they have some personal connection to an organization, they're not allowed to vote on it. Um, I can't speak for all the foundations, but I think, um, especially with organized philanthropy, I think there is an attempt to, to be as accessible as possible. That's our duty to the community. Um, there are some things that we look for since we're in the business of capital grants. Um, you know, we look for a lot of the same things that Catherine and her team and you, Milton, and, and Rodney too look for. We're looking for institutional readiness, particularly with capital. We want to know the organization's well-managed and well-funded, I mean, well-governed. Um, um, we want to know it has a good track record. We want to know that it's doing something and it's poised to do something that no other organization can do, or if there is duplication of effort, that it's warranted, that there's plenty of business to go around, so to speak. Um, we want to know that the organization's routinely operating in the black. That's been something with COVID that's been interesting because we find ourselves 
really wanting to roll up our sleeves to shore up those tried and true organizations that in any other given year would have been lawlessly operating along their plan without any hiccups. And this year being so exceptional, um, we, we need those organizations to be at full strength at the end of all of this. So our trustees are responding sort of with that mindset. Um, but those are some of the things, you know, I could go into a lot of detail about what we look for in a capital project, um, but I would certainly invite anyone on the call that, that wants to know more about that to um, call me or follow up and, and we can sort of talk about what that looks like. But it, it is important to understand that foundations are certainly here with their own stewardship responsibility and that duty is to invest limited dollars wisely. And so if you can bring us a deal, <laughs> so to speak, that, that shows that, then I think it's certainly worth exploring. Um, one other thing you could also think about um, when it comes to foundation relationships, so to speak, is that I think a lot of smaller family foundations, really, especially those who have no staff, you might as well kind of consider them donors, not, um, it's just many times foundations are an extension of a family's personal philanthropy. So my advice as an ex-fundraiser more than a foundation person on that is just to treat those people like individuals. And if they happen to make a gift or a grant out of their foundation, that's a vehicle for their personal decision-making. Uh, so that's where the relationship comes in. That's where having a strong board that can open some doors and make some connections. Um, the organization still has to stand on its own. It's not gonna waltz in and get a grant where uh, there's not um, sort of a solid credible case. But if, um, you know, I would say, interestingly, probably half of the grants that go out the door at the Campbell Foundation are to organizations that we've never heard of before, but they've come to us for the first time and made a strong case. So. Uh, I think one other thing I would love to point out is that um, the Campbell Foundation is in the process of redoing its website, kind of to Janine's point about accessibility. While Mr. Campbell gives and always gave anonymously and the Campbell Foundation continues to do that, we realize that um, maybe having a website with a little more content about sort of what our typical grants look like will be helpful to the community. So that's something everyone can look forward to. I can't promise it'll be glitzy, but <laughs> it'll be informative. Well, Betsy, that was, uh, that was great. Um, but you need to know that I still come with sweaty palms when I come visit you and John. Um, but I can, you know, one other thing, um, and that is you and I and John have had great conversations when I wasn't coming asking for money. Uh, and, and what's the openness to, to those kinds of check-in conversations, those kinds of conversations that ask, where do you see things going? Uh, what are the issues that you're considering now? Um, or just reflections on the times and where you think organizations like mine or other organizations might be able to play, play a role. How open are you to just those kinds of discussions? Well, Milton, for the record, our palms are just as sweaty when we're meeting with you because we're on our best <laughs> behavior. <laughs> Um, Milton has that kind of, he commands that kind of authority, I think. Um, we, we find ourselves getting just as much out of those sort of front of the mill conversations. I mean, as a fundraiser, I would say it would be nice if, if when you're 
talking to a donor, if nine out of the 10 times you talk to them, it's not about money. It's just as Milton described, a conversation where you're learning about a community issue or you're making an introduction of someone that can be helpful, whatever it might be. Um, but I think that the um, gist of it is that we're, we've got limited hours in, in a given week of how much of that kind of thing we can do, but we're we're open. If someone wants an appointment, we grant it. Um, if they live in, you know, three hours away from Atlanta, we might ask them if they'd like to handle it by phone. I, I think there is some sort of um, idea that coming to the office is, is you know, really necessary. And, and we're really, we've got all the time in the world. We'd, we're mindful of the nonprofit's time in motion to invest three or four hours start to finish and, and uh, you know, setting up the call and then coming on the call and then bringing the board member on the call, all of that really generates a lot of activity that sometimes if somebody's calling to set up an appointment, we may just stay on the phone with them for 20 more minutes and just kind of get it done then just for their sake. Um, but we're, we try to be as responsive as possible to requests for um, meetings. If someone writes us, we write back. If someone calls us, we call back. Now there'll be someone watching this call today People say Betsy Verner forgot to call me back last year, <laughs> so I hope that's not the case. But um, generally speaking, that's our that's our goal is to be perfect, uh, perfectly responsive to any inquiry or any call. Thank you, my friend, Catherine. Betsy offered uh, a, a lot of opportunities, perhaps some jumping-off points where you might uh, uh, want to uh, continue that conversation, or maybe some things that uh, that are new. Um, what do you think? What, what advice would you give organizations that are trying to? All around about relationships and also um, under promising and over delivering. I mean, do what you say you're going to do. Um, that that um, and to, to but to really build these these relationships relationships and friendships. I'll tell you, we, we cover 21 counties. Um, we're very we don't have a very large staff. Um, we that. It's really hard. I was panicking when you said, you know, who have you not called back? I mean, I, you, just, you can't always, um, I try to call everybody back, but you can't always like fit in a meeting that week. I mean, you know, that, and, it, and, and I don't want people to be offended. It's really embarrassing. So if you say, well, can you meet with me in a month? But, but, but those are, those are very real. If you've got, if you've got just a, not enough, not enough hours in the day, but in, and I not being able to go to everybody's fundraiser or and all that. So that's, I just want people to know that that's not a, that's not a slight. It's just a matter of, of, of what you can physically do, but, but, but these relationships are important and, and, um, and calling, I mean, I'm generally going to, going to, going to talk to you because I'm interested. I want to, I, I love to know people. Um, but, but also, understanding when I, I have three children, I took one of them to the University of Pennsylvania for a college tour. And um, one of the things the lady said was, you should have your child start a nonprofit that will get them in the door. I mean, I went up to her right afterwards and said, I really don't think that's a good idea. I wish you would not tell people that. I wish you would tell these, these, these students to come up with a good idea and find an existing nonprofit that they can help and implement that. I said, nobody needs to create a new nonprofit. <laughs> Just, I mean, and she looked at me like I was had three heads, but I was like, that is, so you don't necessarily have, that's the other thing to say, you don't necessarily have to have your own nonprofit to do your good work that, and so what we're gonna look for at the foundation is 
is this a, a sustainable program? And that, and sometimes just because you have a good idea, you need to really flesh it out. And in a foundation, I mean, there, as Betsy said already, there are so many wonderful ideas that we wish we could fund them all, but we have finite resources. So, but so really and truly figuring out what your plan is, what your sustainable plan is, I can't stress it enough. And I'm a former banker. I'll sit down with nonprofits all the time and try and show them, or here's a budget, here's what you do. And you can't, uh, you know, if your money's going all to your salary, what are you, what is, what's the return of what you're providing, but trying to, 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 to offer those resources. So we will sit down and do that with nonprofits, but they need to do the work as well. And um, I'm not sure I answered exactly what you're asking for, but I think it's really important that 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 that, that these that, that these nonprofits think about the future and 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 then also think about partnerships. Well, thank you, thank you, Catherine. Yes, you did answer the question, Janine. What what would you offer uh, again, given uh, the fact that you've got the uh, finger on the pulse of just foundation? Sizes. Well, thank you for that question. I've been sitting here as uh, Catherine and, and Betsy were talking and thinking a lot about it. And uh, a couple of thoughts I have is that, um, first I'll say when I came into philanthropy 30 years ago, I spent the first 21 years inside of foundations, much like Catherine and, and Betsy um, and Rodney, um, doing the good work inside of foundations and being in charge of deploying uh, quite a bit of money into the community. Um, and I learned a lot during those 21 years. Um, in the first few years, I came in much like all of my colleagues, um, either from a nonprofit, in my case, it was a nonprofit, um, business, academia, sometimes churches, a lot of other disciplines, and we're brought into often foundations because we might have a particular area of expertise that aligns strategically with that foundation. And um, so these strategic interests that foundations have, whether it be education or food insecurity or poverty or health, often they're bringing folks in from the nonprofit sector that have expertise in those areas. But when I first came into philanthropy, um, my first thought was I felt overwhelmed because I worked for a large foundation. It was over a $2 billion foundation. I had a large but not enough resource to serve the entire community. And I thought to myself, who am I to make the decisions of who receives money and who doesn't? And I felt over the years, um, I tried to take lessons from other leaders who said, first you listen, and I loved what you said earlier, Milton, about uh, listen to the wisdom from the community. Um, I listened, I learned, and then I led in, those, in that order. Um, but I would say that yes, uh, philanthropy can be confusing at times because you may see on a website that we do not accept unsolicited proposals. And so that looks like the door is completely closed but it doesn't always mean that it is closed. I've worked for foundations that have had those notices and they're very interested in building relationships with community. Some want to do that on their own. They'll go into community and meet with as many folks as they can. 
Others may in fact receive proposals over the transom and be willing to build new partnerships through those proposals. So I think one of the things that's really important is to just educate yourself about um, the foundation. You have to do your research. You don't wanna send in proposals before you've uh, made a connection with a leader who has potentially invited you to submit that proposal. Um, unless the foundation has a portal where they open, they have an open process and they're inviting proposals that way, you don't wanna spend your staff time energy and resources, just kind of willy-nilly sending out a proposal. Um, so it, we can't, it can be confusing, but I think doing the research, looking for alignment, ensuring that the work that you're doing is aligned with the strategic interest of that foundation is very important. And um, the other thing that I would say that I noticed um, when I came into philanthropy I wasn't smarter than anybody else out there in the field. And certainly the people in community are living these issues every day. Um, but when I came into philanthropy, I noticed that people thought I was a whole lot smarter than I was. And they would come in and sometimes give away their power. So I love that exchange, Betsy, with you and Milton because he was talking about the sweaty palms, but you said you had the sweaty palms too. <laughs> And believe me, I have the sweaty palms a lot working with people in community and just so much respect for the wisdom of community. And I would just say to folks, please don't give away your, your power. I mean, you have the knowledge of what's needed in community and it's your job to help foundations see what that need is so that we can be advocates on your behalf to the boards and trustees to the leadership inside these foundations to deploy these very precious and limited resources. Thank you, Janine. Um, Rodney, as you and some of the others on the panel know, uh, I spent a couple of years in corporate philanthropy and know that corporate philanthropy is um, similar but slightly different. Uh, is there a, a bit of advice that you'd offer from a corporate philanthropy side that uh, that may be uh, a, a nuanced uh, uh, reply to uh, to some of what we've already heard. No, I think what you what's been said has been excellent. I particularly love Janine what you said. Don't give away your power, uh, and, and I hope that those who are listening do see themselves as leaders and that they are coming to uh, to really extend their leadership. But from our perspective, I found that understanding the culture of the company or the organization that you're going to seek money from is really critical. Uh, and understanding what they're trying to accomplish, understanding who they are and their motivations for giving. Uh, Betsy said, you know, for instance, we are a, a, a corporation without a doubt, but we're also a closely held corporation. We're not publicly traded. And so you, you would think that we have a different culture than Coke, which we do. And so understand that culture. And then secondly, uh, build relationships. Relationships are key. Uh, and as you build relationships, I would say be patiently persistent and understand that, as Catherine said, we all get a number of people who are calling and emailing and trying to get time. And I think all of us have the best of intentions of trying to get there, but the patience and the persistence added, they aid in the relationship. 
And they also help you demonstrate that you understand potentially that organization's culture. So I would say that there are some differences between corporate philanthropy, obviously. Um, you know, what's the motivation? What is pushing it? Is it coming from a marketing standpoint? Is it coming from a, a family standpoint? Is it coming from what? Uh, but also understand that, that you can get everything you need if you continue to stay in the fight. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, one word that's come up throughout this uh, session is leadership. Um, individual leadership, the organization's leadership uh, uh, in its space. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your thoughts on the critical leadership quality uh, that nonprofit organizations, nonprofit leaders need to demonstrate in order to really uh, access uh, your support, but also um, drive the kind of value in community uh, that you hope your philanthropy will enable them to do. Rodney, you've written and spoken a lot about leadership, so let me ask you to offer a thought. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. I uh, was blessed to write a book called Heroes Wanted, and it's a very simple premise that, uh, that we all have the ability to be someone's hero, or we really all have the ability to lead. And what we have to do first is look around us and see what are the opportunities, what are the problems, what needs to be solved, and what can we do within our own strength, what can we do within our own um, self and with our own networks to solve those problems. And I don't think that's any different than the qualities that we seek in a leader, in a nonprofit leader. I, I would add to that resilience, uh, that nonprofit leaders have to be resilient. Uh, because it is not easy. In fact, I would wager that it is, in some cases, more difficult to be a nonprofit leader than a for-profit leader. Uh, the manner in which you bring in your dollars is so remarkably different. Uh, and the relationship, and to some degree, the competition is just as fierce. And so I think it's important that leaders are persistent, patient, and resilient. Thanks. Thank you, Roddy. Um, Janine. Uh, a thought on this topic, leadership? Yes, it's a, I love this question because um, one of the things that I was talking with my staff about earlier is, you know, when I came into philanthropy, um, I entered into philanthropy in 1990. And at that time, we talked a lot about leadership. There were so many leadership programs. There were so many books on leadership. The authors of these books were being brought in to have fireside chats with us. And, you know, I remember Ron Heifetz's book on adaptive leadership and, you know, so many um, opportunities to participate in leadership programs. And Dr. John W. Gardner was one of the key advisors to Mr. Kaufman and wrote the book on leadership. Um, and, you know, it seems like we've kind of gotten away from um, talking as much about leadership. So I really appreciate this question because like Rodney, I believe it's the core of everything. It's at the heart of everything we do. And I feel very strongly that within it, um, certainly in the relationship, that inextricable relationship between philanthropy and public charities at, at the heart of it has to be trust because um, when a nonprofit uh, is building that relationship with a philanthropy, <clears throat> you know, this is people to people, human to human. And we are 
believing in you. We are going to be advocates for you. We have to have transparency, honesty, and trust in everything that is said because we're gonna take that to our boards of trustees, to our senior executives, and they're gonna trust us to represent everything in the most honest way. So I cannot underscore how important that is. Um, sometimes I think if things aren't all good, folks think, well, I can't share that because I may not get the grant. No, it's important to share all of it. It's very important. Um, you would be surprised how important that is. So um, I would say trust, transparency, uh, integrity, character matters. Um, and certainly as has already been said, um, good governance. So Janine, let me, let me push you on one thing that you just said, and that is um, be willing to, to talk about the things that aren't all good. Um, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing. You know, one of the things that I hear a lot is that we in the nonprofit space, human service providers, CEOs of local nonprofits, don't have much room to fail. That, that, that our ability to innovate is constrained by the judgments we feel people will layer upon us if we don't hit that extra target. There are incentives in the private sector to fail, but there are no in, in the nonprofit sector to fail. So, so talk a little bit about that in relationship to your point about um, somebody in my seat being willing to talk about the things that aren't working well. Well, you know, the reality, Milton, is that I'm sure there are philanthropic leaders out there, um, just as there are nonprofit leaders. I mean, you, we have such differences in views and opinions and, and perspectives. And there will be leaders that will judge harshly um, and not leave a lot of margin for error. And maybe uh, we don't know. I mean, Rodney talked about culture within the organization. We don't know what those program officers and those leaders are up against in terms of uh, what the expectations are inside of their own philanthropic institutions. However, there are many out there that um, just want the truth. <laughs> they just need to know that. They have to know that in order to uh, bring forward these proposals. So if they know what some of the things are that you're challenged with, what you're struggling with, um, what some of the financial constraints are, you know, those things will help them and help you in terms of being able to truly be able to, as, uh, as uh, Catherine said, you know, together collectively with that foundation, create some ROI, some return on investment without correcting some of those things or the opportunity to do so, which a foundation may provide through some general support. Um, you know, you will never know that. And, and I just wanna say that sometimes that comes back to bite you. I wanna give one example to that. When I was at the Kauffman Foundation in Kansas City, there was a nonprofit, a fairly significant prominent nonprofit that does not exist anymore because of the story I'm getting ready to tell you. And um, they made a decision 
um, because of financial constraints not to pay the insurance um, for their organization. And they serve children and they had a swimming pool. And, you know, trying to cut corners and not pay the insurance was a very big mistake. And, um, but yet they had submitted a grant and the CEO in hopes that they might get an over a million dollar grant uh, from the Kauffman Foundation was reassuring uh, his or her board that this money was likely to happen. Um, but it was actually a former board chair that learned from the insurance provider that the insurance had not been paid. And we were in the very early stages of reviewing this proposal. And with this information came to us through the community, not through the CEO. And it became a huge problem. And obviously a lot of uh, negative press, um, the CEO was let go, the organization was immediately shut down. So truth matters. It matters. Now, will I say that necessarily um, had we, you know, found that in the due diligence process because we were so early in that we would have made that million dollar grant? I, I can't promise that. But I know without that information and had it not come to us in the way that it did, this, this um, I mean, nothing could happen. Not, absolutely nothing. And so, um, so I just wanted to share that story because I really feel strongly about the transparency. Thank you, thank you for uh, allowing 30 years of friendship to enable me to ask you that, uh, that question and push you a little bit. Uh, Catherine, your, your, your thoughts on, uh, on leadership, those, those critical leadership uh, elements. I tagged first on what Janine was talking about and, and I think that philanthropy allows you to have some noble failures. That, that, that people, that nonprofits should be willing if, to have a conversation with their, with the foundation and say, this is a risk, but we think it's a, uh, it, but we think it's a good bet and let the foundation be your partner with that. That, that, that you can have some good risk capital that you might not be able to get with, um, from government money or other things. So, so don't be afraid to talk about something that it might not be a hundred percent shot, but you, but going back to what Janine said and the not paying the insurance, you, Nonprofits need to tell funders when early on if they're getting into some trouble. There might be some help and some um, maybe they'll find you a consultant to help you figure out your finances. Don't wait till it's too late to do that, I guess. But coming back to leadership, I think that I've for a long time it's been my personal philosophy to two things: do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That that I really that. Um, I, we try and look at all things that way, but but also from the from the gra, gra, from the ground up instead of the top down. That if, even when I was in banking, um, our we had a wonderful leadership style um, when we were a, a local bank was was you know we can't make decisions from up here and have them be good. We need to be asking where the changes need to come from the people who are on the front lines. And it really shifted my mindset. And, I, and, and, and that's the way that I, that I look at things here. And, um, and so from a leadership perspective, we're, we're looking for grassroots leaders, for people who um, everybody out there is a leader. 
I mean, they just have to find it in themselves. And so we've spent a lot of time investing money, investing in ways for people that we've made grants to um, the urban CEO for their leadership academy so that they can bring people to Historic Macon Foundation for their neighborhood leadership academy. So we brought LeaderCast along with um, Peyton Anderson Foundation and Knight Foundation to our community where we've actually partnered with our school district and young community leaders to, so that they know each other 50 50 um, and and one of the things i'm really proud of in our community is starting when they're really young and that we put the leader in me in our in our entire school district the bibb county school district which is sets based on stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people because if if children can see that they that 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 they can make a difference and that these nonprofits out there i mean it is you have a personal responsibility. Every citizen does to, to, they can't wait for, we, I can't wait for government to fix something for me or for another, I need to figure out what I need to do. So I think from a leadership perspective, look, before you start saying someone else needs to do this, what can you do yourself? Thanks so much, Catherine. Betsy, uh, a thought, leadership? Well, what I can tell you about that is that um, I've been at this 25 years at the Camel Foundation, and I have yet to find someone in an executive position in a nonprofit who lacks passion. And to me, that seems to knit all of this together, because if you have passion, the passion naturally drives to everything else. If you have passion about a subject and you want to get, you know, move the needle on some issue, you're going to figure out how to do it. It's just a driving factor. And we have met so many amazing leaders across the state who that, that just seems to be kind of the, the it factor for nonprofit leadership. Um, you're not selling widgets, you're, you're selling solutions to the community, you're selling um, community development, you're selling um, uh, health, you're selling all um, oh, just, you name it, it's um, it, it's one of the things that makes a nonprofit um, community so, gives it so much vitality. And uh, that to me, I think is what excites me about being on this side of it is just the people that we meet. Because, um, you know, I can't tell you how many times, this probably happens five times a year where we might go on a site visit and we might hear about some project that's being built down the road and we leave the site visit thinking, how on earth did they think of that? <laughs> but somebody had an idea and then did what it took to get the idea off the ground. And, and we see it all the time. It's the most gratifying piece of this job. Well, well that's great. We are now rounding third and heading home as we, uh, as we look at uh, the final topic that I'd like to to talk about it, it is one of uh, optimism. What gives you uh, optimism uh, for the future? I think if you're a student of American philanthropy, you understand the singular role that philanthropy has played. It has been the, the fuel for some of this nation's most important social movements. You think about philanthropy's role with the civil rights movement or the environmental movement or the women's rights movement. You think about philanthropy's role with respect to the research that Jonas Salk did uh, around the polio vaccine. There are few things in America uh, that have not had uh, the soft touch of philanthropy somewhere helping make those things happen. So my optimism for the future 
uh, as, as your moderator, comes from our history, the history of this part of the social sector uh, and what it's done for American progress. But let me ask uh, you, Betsy, um, what, what gives you some optimism for the future? Well, it, it may sound a little bit like my last answer, but um, the people who are drawn to this call today, the community leaders throughout Georgia who um, have done it this year of all years, they have done it, you're doing it. And there's not a single year I can think of in my reasonably long life <laughs> that has been as challenging. We've had economic challenges before, we've had um, political strife before, we've had health strife before. This year we've had all of it. And the nonprofit leaders that we're encountering, you would expect some sort of organizational entropy to do be taking place, but it's not. They just stay with it. They stay hopeful. They stay determined. And, um, you know, you wouldn't be in the nonprofit world if you weren't optimistic already. So I think I would just, I would just express appreciation for the people on this call. Well, thank you. Thank you, Betsy. Uh, Rodney, what gives you optimism? I am, uh, I'm hopeful because I think that we have come to the edge of the precipice. Uh, and I think that the blinders are off. And I think we now can see what many others have been seeing for a long time. And, and frankly, many of those who are constituents and those who are applying for dollars have seen at the grassroots level. But the blinders are off. And, and I'm, I too, like you, Milton, am a student of history. And I think about this world's history, not just US history, not even just philanthropic history, but the world's history, that when we have seen an issue and we've been horrified by it, whether it be Nazism in World War II or whether it be uh, slavery, uh, you know, we found uh, the Emancipation Proclamation out of slavery. We found civil rights movement out of Jim Crow. We uh, now are at a point where we can find the solution collectively because we all see the same thing. And so I'm hopeful. Thank you. Janine? Well, I love this question. And um, Rodney, you just mentioned the Emancipation Proclamation. And last night I was listening to the news and one of the news reporters said, you know that the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive order. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think about uh, a couple of years ago, we had at our Louisville conference, John Meacham, um, another historian who um, wrote the book, um, The Soul of America and Finding Our Better Angels. And that resonated with me. I think it was Abraham Lincoln that talked about finding our better angels. And um, he said, we've had difficult moments in our history in America many times before mentioning many of the, the most um, egregious and concerning um, challenges that we've had, much like you were talking about, Rodney, including slavery. And we have continued to grow and thrive in America in spite of all of that. So it gives me optimism that in spite of the challenges that we have today, um, that I believe we're going to find our better angels. Um, I also think that, you know, as I said at the outset, I think, 
you know, I'm going to include philanthropy and public charities together. I think our sector is at the heart and soul of what makes America proud. You know, we represent everything from art and music, history and movement building. Um, we concern ourselves with, you know, food insecurity and health and trying to make sure that children who might otherwise not have an opportunity has a chance. I'm one of those kids that grew into an adult that didn't have a lot of opportunity and um, by the grace of God and so many philanthropic people that were helpful along the way, here I sit today so I know it's possible. And um, I just think that we represent um, a promise. And a part of the reason that I sit in the seat that I do is that I want to hold philanthropy accountable for making good on that promise, for being who it says that it is. And a big part of what philanthropy stands for is love of humanity. So let's get about doing that. Well, thank you. Well, Catherine, that leaves you uh, the uh, unfortunate role of following those uh, impressive and uh, passionate remarks. So, uh, so, so take us home with this notion of uh, optimism. What, what makes you optimistic? That it's individuals and organizations at the local level, the micro, it starts with friendships, it gets bigger to your local, um, to your local community, to your region, to your state, to your state region, and then going bigger than that. But that we're all, I'm optimistic because what I see day to day are, are foundations, um, nonprofit organizations working together to, to solve some big, seemingly intractable problems and to try and, and make mankind greater and, to, and that there's a passion around it, whether it's, it's the, um, your neighbor or it's the executive of the United Way or the Chick-fil-A franchisee, I mean, operator, it's, everybody is looking for their piece of it and how they can make it different. And so I make the world a better place that, and I think people want to get along and they have a passion for that. And um, that, that I'm optimistic because of that. I just think that we're, it, it, it starts at the local and, and it goes up and that I'm, I see really strong, positive things happening right now in our community. Well, thank you for that. Let me offer one closing comment before I turn it uh, to Matt. Uh, and, and that is, uh, and I think it, it's, it's a tie to all that's been said. At, at the United Way, I get to see uh, donors in the workplace who sit behind a desk or sit in a factory. They want to figure out how they can make a difference uh, with a dollar that they can give, hoping that it can be invested in the right place. I get to see uh, corporate leaders like Rodney and others that are looking to see how they can help build community as well as sell the products uh, that, uh, that they are entrusted uh, to make. And I see philanthropic leaders uh, like Catherine and Janine and Betsy uh, and, and Rodney who have their hands on the levers and are the ones helping make important decisions that improve the well being uh, of our communities, uh, whether it's a health and human service uh, focus, whether it's a cultural focus. 
uh, whether it's some other kinds of, uh, of topic that matters to, to community. So I'm optimistic because people like you do what you do. Uh, and I'm thankful that I got a chance to, to get to know all of you and, uh, and share the stage with you today. So thank you all uh, as panelists for your work, but most importantly, thank you as professionals for the leadership, the commitment, the passion, the intellect, the curiosity that you bring. All of those are the ingredients that make this community, make this state, and help make this nation and world uh, a better place for all. Thank you. Matt? Wow, oh, goodness, uh, really goodness. This has been, been wonderful. Um, as we close out, let me uh, certainly express uh, our appreciation to Janine and Rodney and Catherine and Betsy for your wonderful insight this afternoon about the changing trends in the sector and philanthropy. And to my good friend Milton, of course, thank you for not only your insight, but your willingness to moderate. You did an excellent job uh, with some, some heavy hitters, man. Um, did an excellent job. Just a couple of uh, closing thoughts. First, a, a quick reflection on some of the changing trends. Number one, foundations are stretching and they are doing what they can um, financially to really uh, step up and to provide not just the resources um, to the challenges out there, but also to try to make it easier for organizations to tap those resources that there are bold new partnerships like what's happening with United Ways and community foundations um, to streamline processes to that end. Um, we, we heard today from our panel that philanthropy really has to shift from just raising money and granting money to being more intentional about providing leadership to uh, the efforts and the that are getting at the challenges of COVID and racial injustice in our country. Um, and to that end, calls for racial justice and the impacts of COVID um, are really calling philanthropy to be held accountable um, in that regard. Um, that funding decisions are uh, have to be made uh, based on changing demographics. And the idea that challenges in our uh, communities um, affect all of us and, and, and philanthropy must understand that the, the not so usual suspect uh, can be brought to the table to grapple with those challenges look just like the usual suspect. Um, the old adage that it's all about relationships has never been more true than now. Um, and nonprofit organizations need to uh, not be afraid um, to not give up their power, so to speak. They're the ones boots on the ground who are out there, um, who know the challenges and problems better than anybody else. Um, but it is incumbent upon those nonprofit organizations to, to be intentional about creating relationships with philanthropy um, and vice versa. There's a lot of optimism about the future. Um, that the history and tradition of philanthropy in our society has always stepped up to the plate, has always 
played an important role in addressing societal problems. Um, and what we have seen with COVID and with social unrest and the racial injustices that we've seen, philanthropy is doing that, and continuing to do that. Um, again, I want to um, express my sincere appreciation to Milton and all of you who served as panelists today. Um, I mentioned at the outset that part of our leadership development mission here at the Fanning Institute uh, involves nonprofit leadership development. We have a range of expertise and programs and services um, that can benefit nonprofit organizations. We literally wake up every day trying to figure out how we can uh, provide leadership development services and programs um, to nonprofit clients across the state. And I hope you'll, you'll consider giving us a call uh, and taking advantage of that. And there you have it for the latest episode of Leadership Matters, where we host our virtual roundtable conversations across Georgia on business recovery and community resilience while exploring the challenges faced by both public and private sector leadership. And in this case, philanthropy. I'm Matt Bishop. Look for new episodes of Leadership Matters, where I will be joined with the UGA Small Business Development Center and a new roundtable of Georgia leaders from across the state. You can find this episode and future episodes, as well as additional podcasts produced by the JW Fanning Institute for Leadership Development on our website or wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search Fanning Institute. You can also find more about the leadership programs and services of the JW Fanning Institute for Leadership Development at fanning.uga.edu. The J.W. Fanning Institute for Leadership Development and Georgia's Small Business Development Center, units of public service and outreach at the University of Georgia. Learn more at outreach.uga.edu.